Well, I invite you to turn now to uh, Romans chapter 13. Romans 13. And we are working our way through the book of Romans. And uh, uh, before we read, we're going to read verse 8 down to the end of the chapter. So before we do that, let's bow our heads in prayer again. Let's pray. Father, we come again to hear your words. We ask for your uh, Holy Spirit to come amongst us and apply all that we read together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Romans 13 verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that you know the time that the, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to satisfy its desires. So we're in the the closing chapters of this letter, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. And at this point, it's full of practical instruction for Christians. And and one of the mistakes I think we can make as as Christians is when we've, as we've noted, that the first 11 chapters are... uh, are all about the gospel. They're full of indicative statements, you know, statements of truth, great statements about truth, about God, about us, about Jesus Christ, uh, and wonderful things that we are to, to know and to believe. And uh, when we get to the end of chapter 11, we might think, well, that's it. That's the end of the letter. The rest of it's just mopping up or tidying up or whatever. But this, is, uh, this section is, is actually really uh, important. Um, uh, because Paul is now seeking to apply the, the gospel to the Christian life and, as it were, to massage those truths into our lives uh, so that our lives actually change. Um, and Paul is therefore still talking about the gospel, but this time he's talking about the application of the gospel into our lives. He's talking about how it works in our lives, how it changes us and uh, makes us uh, new people. You may remember back in, uh, in chapter 8 that Paul's view of the application of the gospel uh, involved uh, foreknowledge, predestination, calling. Let me, let me just read it to you. Uh, verse 30. Those whom he predestined. Oh, it talks about foreknowledge in 29. Then those whom he predestined he also called. And those whom he called he also justified. And those whom he justified he also glorified. And all these things, foreknowledge, uh, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification, um, it, it spans out the whole uh, history of personal salvation, if you like, from, from eternity past all the way to eternity future. And so uh, included, I think, in the glorification that he mentions is 
is that pr- this present preparatory work of the Holy Spirit in preparing us for glory. Uh, so I'm arguing that uh, sanctification is smuggled in there somehow. Um, that he is preparing us for these things. And as, as part of the work of the, as, you know, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, as the gospel is applied to us, is to transform us into Christ-likeness. To make us more Jesus-like in our living. So that if you remember back to chapter 1 and chapter 1 verse 17... Remember he says there that the, the gospel is the, the power of God for salvation for, to everyone who believes, to, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. When he says that, the power of God is for salvation, he's not simply talking about our justification. That that's obviously gathered up into it. But he's talking about the whole thing. The whole plan of salvation from beginning to end. And this is the wonderful, glorious declaration by God, attested to as we are baptized, that our sins are forgiven and that we have acceptance with God. And that is glorious in itself, but it's not all that there is in our salvation. He means the whole thing. Sanctification and glorification. Everything. And so it's appropriate then. He's, he's calling us to obedience. Uh, to the application of the, the truths of the gospel into our lives. Uh, all the time not forgetting that the true power for obedience. The true power for this transformed Countercultural life that we live that goes against the flow is still the Lord Jesus Christ himself by his spirit found in the gospel well this section I think has um, there's a number of things in here but I'm just going to focus on three imperatives uh, that uh, Paul draws out here um, number one verse eight uh, oh no one anything oh no one anything Secondly, verse 9, uh, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And thirdly, the last verse, verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So that's, that's where we're going to go this evening. First of all, uh, owe no one anything. And Paul begins this uh, with this command. And he's... It's following on from what we were looking at last week, which is um, submission to the state. We're thinking about how do we relate to the state as the church of Jesus Christ, how do we relate to uh, secular authorities. And, uh, and you'll notice that he was uh, concerned, for example, in verse 7, uh, to pay what is owed to them. Uh, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Um, and so giving to the authorities what they deserve, what they, what they are owed, uh, is, a, is a, uh, important for Christians. And that's quite a striking thing to say, isn't it? If, especially if you're in a regime, uh, you're living in a country where the regime is not very friendly towards the Christian church. Uh, Paul still says, I mean, Paul was in that, speaking to Romans, Roman Christians, 
under the reign of Nero at the time. And Nero was no friend of Christians. Indeed, later, he would blame Christians for the fire of Rome and have them burnt. So he was no friend of uh, Christians. And yet, Paul says, pay your taxes. <laughs> uh, give authority, give, give honor, give uh, respect to those whom, to whom it is uh, deserved. And, uh, and, and those authorities live, uh, exist for the common good for, the good, for your good, for the good of society in general. Now Paul now comes to verse 8 and he, he widens this out. And he begins by saying, Oh, no one anything. Oh, no one anything. This is not just about the state now. This is about anybody. Uh, individuals. Other people. And it's not just about taxes, but it's about anything. Don't owe anybody anything. So what does that mean? Now, I think if you were to, to read that verse uh, just on its own and not read anything else in the Bible, you might think that, for example, uh, borrowing money is out of the question for a Christian. And I've met many people who think that. Uh, borrowing money is out of the question. But actually, the Bible does allow for borrowing and lending money. Uh, let me just give you a, an Old Testament example and a New Testament example. So in Exodus 22... Um, after the Ten Commandments are given in Exodus 20, and there's a, there's a couple of chapters on, on other sundry laws and things. And uh, in Exodus 22, verse 25, uh, the Lord says, If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not extract, exact interest from him. So, so lending to a, an Israelite brother, or sister, I guess, <laughs> Uh, was permitted, and therefore so was borrowing within Israelite society under God. And similarly, in the New Testament, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.42, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So lending and borrowing are, are a good thing. It's allowed. And indeed, sometimes it's desirable to do that. It's a way of extending help to people without exploiting them. You know, you're not to exact large amounts of interest like the money lenders. However, the Bible does speak in great, with great wisdom about the dangers of getting into debt. Um, one that always comes to my mind is Proverbs 22, verse 7. Uh, the rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. And that highlights something very important about borrowing money from other people. Is that taking on debt is a risk. It's risky, a risky business. You actually become... And the bigger the debt, the bigger the risk, and the more you become a slave to the one you owe money to. And you get into trouble. And more and more of your life, you know, the bigger the debt, the more and more you, constrained your life becomes. Because there's so, there's so limited room for maneuver. Uh, because you have to pay off the debt, and you may be legally obliged to do that. 
So lending and borrowing is, is permitted in Scripture, but there are warnings about the dangers of it. Well, back to our verse in verse 8 of Romans 13. How are we to understand this then? Well, I think in the, in the light of the other verses we just thought about, I believe what Paul's getting at here is the need to take a responsible attitude to, uh, to money and financial arrangements. He doesn't rule out borrowing from someone, but it, but it does rule out not being able to pay it back. You know, so you can just imagine somebody saying, oh, can you give me some money and help me out? And you, you want to give them money. And then the person just walks off and never thinks about paying it back again. And if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian who does that, and you, you receive money from somebody else, and you think, well, it's just my Christian brother, he can, he can afford it, he doesn't need to, to be paid back, then uh, that's an extremely dangerous thing to be doing. It's a, that's a great sin, actually. And I've known people like that. Profess Christ and take other people's money and then never pay it back. See, Christians need to be careful with God-given resources and not let debt build up and pay off debts as they arise. And what we should recognize here, I think, is, is that one of the virtues of, the gospel, of gospel Christianity that, and it's a virtue that gospel Christianity has brought to society in general, is the virtue of carefulness with money, and especially careful with other, carefulness with other people's money. And we don't mess around with other people's money. And this care and this trustworthiness is actually what has brought prosperity to much of our Western world. Because it's founded upon Christian principles. So why should Christians be like this? Why should Christians do this? Well, because, as the rest of the verse tells us, that we actually have a debt, a continuing debt of love to other people. Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So... It, Whenever you enter into a financial transaction with a brother or a sister, for example, it's, it's never simply a financial transaction. But you're thinking to yourself, these people matter and are owed love by me, a Christian. And I have a debt of love to them. Fourteen years ago, I, I mean, you, may, you may be old enough to remember this. Some of you won't. <laughs> But 14 years ago, the, the Western world underwent a, a severe financial shock in 2008. Um, and it was a disaster for so many people. Millions and millions of people put out of work. Millions and millions of people had to, uh, had to uh, you know, give up their houses because they couldn't pay off the mortgages anymore. Severe financial shock. And, and the reason for that that happened, as, I, as far as I can tell, not being an expert in these things, but the reason it happened was because of the absence of this virtue amongst those who take other people's money and use it for something else. That it was lent unscrupulously to people, feeding their hunger for property and possessions without caring about the risks. 
It's one of the reasons why people rack up debt on their credit cards and they can never pay it back because they don't know that debt of love that they should have to other people. It becomes anonymous, doesn't it? Just at a credit card company. It's one of the reasons why people take out mortgages which involve payments that are far beyond their means because they feel no debt of love to those from whom they borrow. Why do people run up debts in our day? Is it because we're loving other people? No, it's because we love ourselves. People love themselves. They run up debts because they want stuff now. We pay later. We fill our wardrobes with clothes we don't need and our house with stuff we can't afford. But we want it all and we want it now. But as Christians who are being transformed by the renewing of our minds through the gospel, you will be different, says Paul. Christians are careful about what they owe. And they would rather do without than owe money to people and take money that you can't pay off. So, owe no one anything. Take care with your finances. Here's the second thing. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. After mentioning the debt of love as a driving principle behind not uh, owing anyone anything, Paul now speaks about the love relationship in relationship to the law. And uh, verse 8 says that the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now what does he mean by the law here? Uh, Well, he spells it out in verse 9. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So here he's mentioning the specifically the 6th, 7th, 8th, and 10th commandments. And, uh, and if you've read the 10 commandments, you'll have seen that the first four, uh, you'll know that the first four commandments are to do with our relationship to God, and the, the remaining six are to do with our relationship with other people. And the last six, um, and we have four of those six here mentioned But we're not to limit our thinking to those four commandments. We're actually just to expand it out. uh, Because he says at the end, any other commandment. So uh, we've got to take all the commandments uh, seriously. But I think here he means the Ten Commandments particularly. In dealing with our relationships with other people. The second table, if you like. The uh, commandments five through to ten. And notice what he does next. And he sums them up in one statement. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now that should be familiar to us. If you know what Jesus has said. Because Jesus said the very same thing. So Mark 12 verse 30. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength. And the second commandment is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus said this. And so Paul is going in the same direction as Jesus here. And it's interesting that he says that the command is not just to love your neighbor, but to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's an often misunderstood addition. Some people, I've met some people down the years who have said, uh, in order for me to uh, love other people, I've got to love myself really well first. Um, And I've even heard pastors and ministers who were teaching their people that they really needed to 
to grow in their self-esteem and their self-love before they could be really loving to other people. And and so their Christian counseling programs that may have existed in those churches are geared towards this building up of self-esteem. Well, that's completely to misunderstand what Paul is is saying here, Jesus says. Because Paul understands that human beings basically have no problem whatsoever loving yourself. It doesn't matter actually how low your self-esteem is or how high it is. Everybody loves themselves. And you can be ever so humble and, and, and portray yourself as being a, a, a completely pathetic individual and say, so that you try and garner pity from other people. But you're actually being profoundly self-centered in doing that. Because people are basically selfish. We'll use any tactic to get what they want. That's our basic disposition in life, you see. It's, no matter how it's disguised and dressed up as pride or even lack of self-esteem, everyone loves themselves. That's Paul's point. And the Bible's instruction in, in this summary command, therefore, is you know how you love yourselves, don't you? Therefore, that is how you're to love other people. Redirect it. Love other people. Stop thinking about yourself. You're not to commit adultery because you love your wife or your husband. Not because you love yourself and your pleasures. You're not to murder or to hate because you love other people. You're not to steal because it's unloving to take other people's stuff. You're not to covet their possessions or their wife or their husband or their donkey. (laughs) You're not to do that because you love them. All of these things are unloving. So love and the law go together. But it's a strange thing, isn't it? Because when we talk about keeping the law, keeping the Ten Commandments, love is, for some of us, love is not exactly the first thing that comes into mind. Command keeping might think of as being a somewhat angular, kind of prickly, dutiful and stern thing to do. But actually it's all about love. Loving brothers and sisters. How can the two go together? Love and the law. Well, because the law in its, by itself is powerless. Paul said that uh, early on. Uh, he's, he's pointed out in Romans 7.12 that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good and all that's, that's good. But then he says in 7.14, for we know that the law is spiritual and I am of the flesh, sold under sin. And so the problem for us in our sin is not the, the law and its lack of power, Uh, so much as the problem of my sinful flesh. That just having a a list of commandments in front of me is of absolutely no use to me as long as I'm under the rule of sinful flesh. 
And so as we saw in chapter 6, that all people left to themselves are under that rule of their sinful flesh. So no amount of law keeping can ever change that about a person. And the only way to end the rule of sinful flesh is to come under new management. To come under Jesus Christ. So remember, we looked at this in chapter 6. The idea of Christ's death and his resurrection marked out by your baptism tells you to be translated from one kingdom into another, that you have moved from one king under one king's sin and the law that can't do anything about it, to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And now you're in safety. You've been saved. And you have a new authority in your life. That doesn't mean sin doesn't, uh, doesn't appear in your life. But it doesn't rule you. It doesn't control your destiny. It doesn't determine where you end up. It's not in charge any longer. The Holy Spirit is there. And you're being transformed. You're a new person in Jesus Christ. And one of the features of that Holy Spirit transformation is you get this new love for the law. That God's Spirit, he writes that law into your heart. He doesn't just give you a book and say, do that. He writes it into your heart. He says, I want to do that. You see it in the book and you think, yeah, that's what I want to do. <laughs> it's such a tragedy, I think, to, to, to meet people who don't know Christ. But they're adamant about this, that uh, all you need to do is live a good life. And even, t- even to say, yeah, I, you know, as long as you love your neighbor, uh, God will be good to me. Well, they say, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so that's what I try to do, and therefore God will be good to me. It doesn't change a thing. If you don't have Christ, and you've not been transformed... A new man, a new woman, a new boy, a new girl. I remember once, I was traveling back from London. I can't remember what I was doing. I think I'd I'd gone to a church in Sweden, I think. And I was coming back on a Saturday night uh, to try and preach here. And uh, I'd been for a couple of days in Sweden visiting our church. And uh, I met a couple of blokes on the train who had been to a football match. Man City fans who'd been to, I don't know, seen Arsenal or something. And uh, they'd had a few drinks on the train, as they do. They obviously won. <laughs> they were happy. And they were very talkative. You know, that's what happens when you drink too much, you get very talkative. Say things you shouldn't say. And they start, they get very, philo- you know, I don't know if you notice this, but drunk people get very philosophical about things. Oh, this is what this is what life's all about. <laughs> Start telling you what life's all about, and uh, and they believe that um, you know for them life is all about being treated with respect and dignity, which is very common, isn't it? Treat people with respect and dignity, and everything will be okay. Interesting, not love, but respect and dignity. And when people say that, what they're saying is, um, as long as I get respect from people and I get dignity, you know, people 
ascribe to me my dignity that I think I'm worth, uh, then everything will be okay. And so I asked the question <laughs> to these drunk blokes, um, so how's that going for you? You know, the respect and dignity agenda. And the immediate response was, I remember it, oh, not very well. <laughs> and that was the opening I needed to talk to them about Jesus Christ. I don't know if they took anything in. Drunk people don't take anything in very much sometimes. But I was able to talk to them about Jesus Christ. Because a person who does not have the indwelling spirit of Christ has no power to love, uh, no motive to love, nothing at all. And so you can never keep the commandments. You can never even live by the standards you set for yourself. No matter what they are. You're always a hypocrite. Left to yourself. And I think it's, you know, giving somebody ten commandments and expecting them to change is like, it's kind of like a person sitting in the car with, and the sat-nav is on, but there's no fuel in the tank. You know, you know where to go, but you can't go there because you've no fuel in the tank. And in that situation, what do you need? You need somebody to come and rescue you, to give you the fuel in the tank, <laughs> so that you, you can then go and make progress. And so you see the tragedy of people without Jesus Christ. They can't do anything. They may know what the Ten Commandments are. They know what, may know what an idea of love or whatever. But they can't do anything about it. Not really. So love and law go in hand, hand in hand. And only the Christian who has Christ can truly love. This brings us to the final point. Let me finish off. Put on Christ. Put on Christ. You see this there in verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And this is a, you know, it's an urgent plea to Christians. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? It's, it's actually to Christians that this command comes. Uh, and, he's, and Paul kind of rubs this point in, in verse 11. He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Paul says it's time to get up. Uh, Through the gospel, the light is dawning. And when Christ comes again, the sun will be up. And then full and final salvation will be here. With Jesus. And so it's time now for you to get up and wait and be ready. See, the world around us is in darkness. With all its empty philosophies, all its empty ideas, all its petty ideas of what life's all about. And people are going to be taken by surprise by one of two things in the end. One will be the return of Jesus Christ, which will bring this gospel age to an end. Or their own death, which may come at an untimely moment. And as Hebrews tells us, man is destined to die once and after that face judgment. So there's a surprise coming for the vast majority of people. 
And at that moment, there's going to be no turning back from the path you've been on. All opportunity will have gone. However, we see, we will see the light of Jesus Christ. So get up. Brothers and sisters, this evening we need to get up. I don't mean literally, but you know, we need to wake up and get up spiritually. Cast off the works of darkness. And here he lists some of them in verses 11 through to 14. And you may have no doubt that these early Christians lived in a culture where these things were commonplace, orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality and sensuality, quarreling and jealousy. And I have no doubt some of those Christians had been in the habit of engaging in those things and maybe still did as Christians. Because they hadn't yet learned what it means to follow Christ properly. And every Christian has vestiges of the old life that they carry with them into the Christian church. And for a time, they can't see that there's anything wrong with it. Paul is pointing to this. He's saying, wake up. Wake up and get up. And if you dwell in these things, then you're slumbering, you're dozing in the Christian life. You need to get up and wake up, live a new life with a growing sense of urgency to live using the weapons of spiritual warfare, not simply succumbing to the flesh with all its desires and passions, but live for Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me that Paul says, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And he's saying, I think, you know, that the older you get, the more urgency there must be. Sometimes it's the opposite, isn't it? You get converted and you're full of, z- full of vim and vigor and zeal for the gospel and you're talking to everybody and you're upsetting everybody because they don't understand you and you're just saying all the wrong things and everything. And then gradually over time it kind of abates and uh, people settle into this kind of bleh, um, churchiness. Uh, Paul seems to suggest the opposite in genuine Christianity. You have a sense of urgency that grows and grows with time because Jesus is coming or your death is coming. And salvation is coming. Salvation is there to be, to, to be explained and proclaimed. And I say to you, for those of you, for those of us, some of us are in retirement. Some of us are approaching it fast. How much more urgent for you and me to wake up and get up. Not to take your foot off the gas, as it were in the Christian life and take it easy and leave things to other people but to give yourself with renewed vigor to the Christian life put off those works of darkness put off those temptations that will hit you at that stage of life and let me tell you at that stage of life there's a whole new set of temptations that faces you as a Christian as you approach retirement Temptations may change, but the the fundamental presence of temptations doesn't change. It's just new. So put on Christ. Put him on. And it's interesting, he says, don't don't try harder. It's It's not about trying harder. It's about putting on Jesus. Like a coat. Put him on. And you wear him 
Do you know he's there? And that changes everything for you. Transform life does not begin with trying harder to be, to live a more moral life. It begins with Christ. So this evening, have you put on Christ? Are you putting on Christ Jesus? Are you waking up? Only then can you love as the law demands. Only then can you pay that debt of love that you continually owe. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this wonderful passage that challenges us in so many ways. We pray you'd help us to put on Jesus Christ. Not to continually be trying to shed him And like an old coat that you don't want to wear and just hang up, leave him to one side when we get on with other parts of our lives. But rather, we live with him. Lord, give us that love for him first, so that we may love others. In Jesus' name, amen.